Abu Bakr al-Baghdadi, the world's most wanted and brutal terrorist, dead after a daring raid by the elite U.S. to force. He was the founder and leader of ISIS, the most ruthless and violent terror organization anywhere in the world. 5 p.m. Saturday night, President Trump flanked by Vice President Pence, National Security Advisor O'Brien, and Defense Secretary Esper, gathering in the Situation Room with military brass, including the Chairman of the Joint Chiefs, all watching a live, step-by-step feed of the mission. Eight Chinook helicopters took off on the secret mission from a Kurdish-controlled area in Iraq, flying low and taking on gunfire before landing in northern Syria. Baghdadi fled into an underground tunnel with three children. The president today speaking of the mission in stark detail. He died after running into a dead-end tunnel whimpering and crying and screaming all the way. But before the special operations team could get to him, Baghdadi detonated a suicide vest he was wearing. The three children killed alongside him. His body was mutilated by the blast. The tunnel had caved in on it in addition. Force was on the ground for roughly two hours in a firefight with Baghdadi's men, killing two of his wives, who were also wearing suicide vests, although they did not detonate. At 7.15 p.m., the call came into the Situation Room from those on the ground, saying 100% confirmation, jackpot, over. We took highly sensitive material and information from the raid, much having to do with ISIS, origins, future plans, things that we very much want. Welcome to the Global Recon Podcast. I'm your host, John Hendricks. I have a special guest on with me for this episode, Bill Delaporte. Bill served for 22 years in the Army. 17 of those were spent at the Special Missions Unit. Uh, Bill is part owner of the Archon Ready Group. Uh, Bill, how's it going, brother? Good, 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 John. How you doing? I'm good. Um, I'm glad we were able to do this. Uh, I the last podcast that I published was with Nate Edmondson. Um, yep. And yeah, we had a focus on on some of the work that he does over in Africa, the counter poaching stuff. Um, but Today we'll talk about Archon Ready Group. Uh, you know, we'll talk about your background and your experiences. Um, so you spent 22 years in the Army, uh, 17 at the Special Missions Unit. Um, that is uh, a lot of service, a lot of combat. What motivated you to join? Uh, man, I, I tell you what, that's a that's a funny story, and I was just telling it yesterday. When I graduated high school back in 1992, you know, I, I had no discipline. Um, I had drive. I knew I wanted to do something. Uh, I just had no plan. So um, a buddy of mine, he and I were working out uh, at the gym at the local community college. And when we were done with our workout, I, I jokingly said to him, hey, let's, uh, let's go talk to some recruiters, man. Uh, you know, kind of chuckling the whole way. And uh, I'm probably going to say some things that might offend some folks, uh, you know, but just understand it's all in good fun. So um, 
we went to the recruiter station uh, and back in Melbourne, Florida, uh, where I lived, the recruiter station was broken down into a quad. So you had Air Force, Navy, Army and Marines. Straight away, I knew I didn't want to be a Marine. Uh, and that was just from ignorance. You know, I, I didn't know anything about them except for the stereotype uh, that one could pick up off of TV or movies or anything like that. Uh, I didn't want to go into the Navy, um, quite honestly, because I've never been a phenomenal swimmer. Uh, you know, people are like, Hey man, you're from Florida. You're surrounded on water by three sides. Uh, and I'm like, yep, I get in, I get tired, I get out. Uh, so those, those two were off, um, spoke to the air force and, uh, my big questions were, how do you make rank? You know, how do you progress and how do you make pay? You know, how much do you get? And, uh, the air force said, well, you have to take test, uh, to make the next rank. And I was like, yep, thanks a lot. Uh, so then I went over and spoke to the army and then I tell you what, those, uh, those recruiters had their act dialed in. Uh, they were like, Hey, you know what? Let's, let, we're going to go play basketball right now. We can talk later. Uh, how about you guys come, come play basketball with us? Um, so, you know, two guys, my buddy went with me, two guys, six foot two, six foot three, walk in. It's, it's not a hard guess that we play basketball. So we're like, hell yeah, we'll go play with you. Um, so went and played basketball with them, came back that afternoon. Uh, and you know, again, man, this looking back, I, I can't help but laugh at it as well. You know, the recruiter's like, hey, what do you want to do? I was like, man, I want to jump in behind enemy lines, blow up a bridge, and get the hell out. <laughs> and he looks at me and he goes, you want to be a combat engineer? I was like, all right, sounds good. <laughs> so I, I signed up that day, man. So within the span of, hell, I don't know, five hours, going from cracking a joke at the gym to put my name on the dotted line, uh, yeah, it was a, uh, it was a impulse buy for sure, but it's, uh, it's worked out in the end. Okay. So you went in the army as a combat engineer initially. Yep. Yep. And how long were you working in that capacity? Uh, so after, uh, basic in AIT, uh, I went straight to airborne school because I had that in my contract. Um, and funny enough about, about 40 of us from basic and AIT all went to airborne school together down at Fort Benning. Uh, so it was like a continuation, uh, hanging out with the same buddies. After that, I went to, uh, I got assigned to Fort Bragg. Um, and then we're all sitting in a room, you know, none of us know what the hell is going on. And some guy comes in and he reads, uh, some names off of a list. And one of my, you know, my name was on that list. And they're like, all right, you're going to the 82nd Airborne. And, uh, and then that's when, you know, I, I started being a combat engineer for, for real once I made it to the 82nd. Uh, and, man, I enjoyed it. I was surrounded by great leadership. Um, and it kind of molded, molded the beginning of my career. And I did that for about three years. Uh, and then I had a buddy of mine, Smoking Joe. Smoking Joe was a engineer on the support side uh, at the special missions unit and uh, we knew each other and uh, he said hey bill i think you would really fit in uh, to this environment out here why don't you why don't you come on out uh, and and give it a go so i went out and i applied uh, and i made it to the support side of the house out of the special missions unit so i did that for a little while 
and, um, you know, I knew I didn't want to be in support. I wanted to be supported. You know, I wanted to be the tip of the spear, uh, as they say. So, um, a couple of the operators out there pulled me to the side and they're like, Hey man, you know, maybe you should think about, uh, going to selection and assessment. Uh, and near simultaneously, I was getting divorced, uh, from my first wife. Uh, so I thought, you know, hell man, I'm, I'm going to do what I want to do for me. Uh, and so I gave it a go and, um, yep. Went up to, uh, West Virginia, you know, eventually made it through the selection and assessment process, uh, eventually made it through the operator training course. And, um, and then, yeah, the, the rest was history after there. Okay, so let's uh, let's rewind a little bit. So you spent a few years in a support role and then in a direct support role? Well, and then from there, yeah, one year in direct support and then straight to operational. Okay. So um, the Special Missions Unit, you know, obviously people think about it. Um, you know, you think about the operators, the guys going on hits and things like that. But there is a lot of support that goes into that, whether that's on the intel side or, um, you know, logistics or whatever it may be. Um, can we talk about uh, just some of the stuff that you were doing as a support guy before you became an operator? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. You know, one of the functions uh, of a, you know, engineer support for special missions unit is to build targets, rehab targets, uh, facilitate training, uh, as best you can. And, you know, no place, no unit on the planet has a support package that can even rival, you know, the army's special missions unit. Um, and I tell you back, back when the war was kicking off, it, it was intoxicating to have that many people all moving in the same direction, all one, one goal. Uh, and, and back then you could go up to anybody and ask them, what is your primary focus today? And every one of them would say the operator on the ground right now. And, and man, I tell you what, that is, that is an environment that just draws people in. Uh, yeah, I mean, you couldn't help but be proud of what was happening, no matter your level. So one of the interesting things about the Special Missions Unit is uh, the selection is open for anyone to try out. Um, yeah, yeah. So you, you get a wide range of folks from across the, I'm, I'm assuming mainly from the Army, but it's open to folks from military wide, right? It is. Yeah. So there's, you know, there's, uh, online, you see things like who's better, you know, army Rangers, green berets or Navy seals. Um, the, one of the differences between the Navy special missions unit and the army special missions unit is the vast majority of the operators on the Navy side are all prior SEALs versus in the Army, guys are coming from different units. Um, can you touch on that a little bit? 
Yeah, you know, and again, this is all just my uh, opinion, but uh, and I, I know you've heard this before. The Army Shmew uh, doesn't pick the best guy for the job. They pick the right guy for the job. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then the schoolhouses are different. Uh, you know, the operator training course for the Army, you've got no one yelling at you, really. Um, you know, there's just a guy up on a catwalk taking notes. Uh, that's it. Whereas the green team for the Navy's, uh, shmew, you know, those, those dudes are getting beasted, uh, on the regularly, uh, you know, and that's just what I get from some of the Navy shmew guys that I've worked with in the contracting world. So it, I don't know hundred percent how it works out for the Navy, right? Cause I'm not going to armchair quarterback them. Uh, those guys are phenomenal at what they do. And, um, you know, they've, they've had some bad eggs, no different than any other unit uh, when it comes to writing books or making movies or, you know, whatever it may be. Um, but uh, I think by offering up selection or the opportunity to assess to a wider batch of guys, I mean, you get some, you get some great guys in with a lot of skill sets. Uh, so for example, we had on my team, I had a guy from the Navy, Mm. uh, and when it came to, you know, messing with the Zodiacs or, uh, anything water related, even though he was the six I see on the team, I'm going to acquiesce to what he has to say, even though I was the team leader. You know, that's just, that's just smart business. Right. Uh, so, so yeah, I mean, I mean, that's kind of beating around the bush on it. If I had to sum it up, I'd say definitely opening the selection and assessment to a wider swath of individuals, career fields, branches, whatever you want to call it may produce, um, a more rounded team. Yeah, I always find that fascinating, uh, you know, just l- learning about some of the differences and that creates a, a difference in culture and, and things like that. Um, but it's also interesting how you mentioned um, there's no one yelling at you, really. Uh, just guys are just kind of quietly taking notes. I would imagine that applies a different kind of pressure on the guys going through the course. Yeah, it does. You know, I mean, when you don't know what the hell they're writing down, I mean, for all you know, they could be writing down, uh, you know, gallon of milk, loaf of bread, you know, (laughs) who knows, but, uh, man, it'll get to you. And you know, you'll have these little come to Jesus moments where you're like, I need to pull my head out of my ass and, and figure this out quick. Um, and there's, you know, I, I, again, I can't speak to the green team side, even though I've worked with some green team instructors, but, uh, it does, it does create a different level of mentality, I think. Yeah. Okay. So how was the, the transition, um, as far as being a support guy and then becoming an operator? Like, how was that for you, um, you know, mentally, professionally? Man, you finally got to see what was going on behind the curtain. Um, you know, the 
the rewards are much higher behind the curtain, but the hammer falls harder behind the curtain too. You know, you are now expected to perform at an all new level. You know, your professionalism needs to step up. Your mental game needs to step up. Uh, I mean, you, you go from, you know, you put any one of those guys, I, I don't care, any one of them, Navy, Army, it doesn't matter. You take any one of those guys and you put them in conventional forces and they are rock stars, 100% rock stars. Um, and, you know, not to pat myself on the shoulder when I was conventional forces, you know, I, I was no slouch. But then you cross the hall, or I think the Navy calls it get to the upper deck. Um, mm. Once you make that transition, you're like, holy shit, man, I've, I've got to bust my ass just to be mediocre today. Right. Um, so... Yeah, it's a it's a slap of reality real fast. But you know, you've worked so hard for it, uh, you don't hesitate to take that responsibility. Right. So this is something that I've uh, so I've been doing this podcast for about five years now, um, yep. and I, I've come across all different kind of folks, different branches. Um, but the majority of the people that I interview and, and deal with are from the special operations community. Um, I've had several guys on from the unit. Um, and one thing that I have noticed or picked up on over the years is there are a lot of guys who were support for the unit, but they don't come out and sort of say that they kind of lead you to believe that they were operators. Is that something that you've seen uh, maybe since getting out or maybe even in, in the army? No, no, not personally. Uh, you know, cause you're going to get called out on it at some point. Right. Um, so yeah, no, I, I, I haven't seen that personally. Okay. And I, I think that time and support too gave me more time to mature. You know, you figure I graduated high school in 92, messed around for two years, joined the army in 94, um, went to support, uh, in 97, got married in 97, you know, three years later, uh, worked on the transition. Uh, so I think, I think that time, and support gave me an opportunity to kind of peek under the curtain a little bit. Uh, but, uh, and gave me time to mature, gave me time to figure things out. So, yeah, I think it, I would not change a thing, uh, if I had to go back, I think as far as that goes. Right. Okay. So how long were you in the unit as an operator? Uh, just over 10 years. Okay. And w within that 10 years, obviously you have rotations uh, to the Middle East and things like that. Yep. Okay. And are you able to talk about some of the jobs that you held um, as an operator? Well, you know, I, I made my way all the way from the youngest guy on a team uh, up to team leader. Um. You know, most of that stuff is self-explanatory. Uh, you know, if you've got some specific questions, you know, I, I don't 
I don't mind answering those. But, you know, most of the stuff I'm going to say today is nothing someone can't just go Google, right? right. Um, I mean, when I signed that non-disclosure statement, I, you know, I took that to heart uh, for, for all intents and purposes. Um, but, uh, yeah, as far as tours, you know, you know, once you retire, I mean, all that stuff is in your files that you take home with you. Um, and not necessarily public domain, but, you know, I had 13 tours, I think eight to Iraq, five to Afghanistan. Um, and, you know, they were all... They were all fun. Um, you know, some were a bit of a pain in the ass. Uh, you know, politics would creep in every now and then. But, uh, man, it was, it was just a good time. I missed the camaraderie with the guys. I missed the, I missed the opportunity to test yourself. You know, you were, you were in a position to test yourself almost nightly. You know, when, when people start shooting, which way are you going to run? And now being retired, I think that's one of the biggest things I miss is that personal, personal test that, uh, that check, I guess, if you could uh, call it that. I, and then the autonomy, uh, you know, I miss that as well. I mean, you know, it was one thing that we try to emphasize at Archon Ready Group when we're teaching students marksmanship is mindset right anyone can after a while point a weapon at a target pull the trigger without disturbing the sights and hit their target right that's that's the focus we have at archon for new shooters but can you point that weapon at another human being and prepare yourself to do something ultra violent uh so the mindset you had overseas on target is the same mindset you have to have back here stateside when you're in a self-defense situation right. or something like that. So, so that mindset, um, not, not being able to switch that, uh, flip that switch for that mindset, you know, that's a little bit of a drag. Uh, so when you mentioned not being able to flip it, do you mean as a civilian to flip it to be able to defend yourself? Or you mean as a, a special operations guy coming out and transitioning? Uh, I, I, I imagine maybe not. Let's see. Let's, let's put it this way. You would have a group of guys just standing around, smoking and joking, right? Maybe post-assault. First target is all secure. Uh, everything's gone great. Whatever. Everyone's just hanging out, and then all of a sudden, something else pops up, and you go from just smoking and joking to one of the most violent human beings on the planet mm. uh, to get the job done. Right? Because that that is that mindset, uh, and the the selection process picks out guys that can control that switch. That's that's part of it, in my opinion. I mean, hell, at the end of the day, I don't think anybody knows what they're looking for. Uh, you're either just told, congratulations, you made it, or, hey, thanks for trying. Right. But, you know, now that, now that you're out, I mean, there's, do I miss 
I guess I missed the whole idea of just a bunch of good guys hanging out and at a moment's notice, uh, you know, they can, they can do whatever they want, wherever they want. I guess I missed that level of freedom, autonomy. Uh, yeah. Yeah. I, I know that's hard to, it, it's difficult for me to explain, but, uh, you know, when I was in and I was back in the States, I didn't want to mess with anybody. I didn't want confrontation, you know, just, just let it go was my philosophy. Um, and now that, now that that's not around anymore, or maybe it's just, I'm getting old, older and more of a curmudgeon, but, uh, I find myself, uh, you know, playing with that switch a little bit more, I guess. Hmm. And are there other, um, former operators at Archon with you? Yeah. So Dan Ibach, um, one of my best friends, he and I, uh, together with, uh, Adrian, uh, Sanchez and, um, Nate, who you just had on your show together, we formed Archon ready group. Uh, and right now, you know, Dan and I are the primary instructors and that is, that is one of the things we try and convey or pass along to the students is, is that mentality, that, that switch when, you know, you're training with a weapon, you're training with a weapon for a couple of reasons. Either you want to be a competitive shooter, either you want to have a gun for home defense or self-defense, um, or you just like, you just like shooting period. That's it. Uh, so the guys that we typically work with are either looking for that competitive edge or self-defense. And whether it be competition or self-defense, you have got to be able to flip that switch and just in your head, there's no way I'm losing this fight, whether right. it be a stage at a USPSA match or, you know, someone's coming in your house. Yeah. Right. And, and that's the mindset that you need to win or in a life and death situation to survive. Yeah, exactly. And, you, you know, that's also the mindset of, you know, some of these top CEOs. I mean, these guys don't go into a endeavor thinking, gosh, I hope this works out. You know, I mean, that is the mindset of an alpha, right. uh, basically, you know. So, yeah, we, we definitely try and convey that in our instruction at Archon Ready Group. So today being September 12th. Um, Yesterday was the anniversary of the 2001 attacks uh, on America. Yep. Where were you on September 11, 2001? I was in a hotel in Nashville. I was getting ready for my day. I had just got out of the shower. Uh, you know, my typical day uh, when I was traveling was get up, turn on the news, uh, get in a shower, get dressed. Uh, and I was up in Nashville trying to, well, I was up in Nashville for some, for some reasons. And, uh, I come out of the shower and the first, the first plane had already hit. Uh, and so they've got their live cameras are going and, you know, initially it's like, oh man, that something, something went wrong. The pilots, uh, died or, you know, no one knew. And then once that second bird hit, uh, the second tower, you knew it was, you know, it was a bad day. You knew it was an attack at that point. Right. 
And you were already um, at the unit at this point? I was, yeah. Still on the support side back then, but uh, okay. yeah, I was still there. So what year was it that you went to selection? I think it was 04. Okay. And um, if we can just talk about the selection a little bit, you know, I don't know how much you want to talk about it, but um, did you go through a period of physically preparing for that? Or, you know, were you already, you know, keeping in shape and you just went, went at it? Um, yeah, I went, I went through a phase where I was getting ready, you know, mainly working on cardio, uh, you know, because if someone comes up and says, Hey, now, now add this much weight, you're not going to say, no, that's, that's too much. I quit. Uh, you know, so however much weight you got to carry, you're going to carry. Um, but to me, I just wanted to make sure my cardio was at a point where, where I could just keep going, you know? Right. And, you know, honestly, and and this was told to me as well by some of the guys that were like, Hey, maybe you should think about this. You could, I I could point on a map, uh, all the places you have to go, you know, you got to go here, you got to go there, you got to go there. It doesn't matter if you know where they are, you still got to walk it. Still got to get there. Uh, Yeah. So, yeah, just just focused on cardio was, was really all I did. Right. Okay. So yesterday, uh, Patrick Payne was awarded the Medal of Honor. Uh, he is the first living member of the unit to receive the medal. Um, the last time the, the medal was received by members of the unit was in uh, the Black Hawk Down incident in Mogadishu. Um yep. Typically, I mean, obviously, the Special Missions Unit, um, Army and Navy, you know, the biggest missions that the country needs to get done or the most dangerous or whatever goes to one of those units or both or whatever. Um, so that, yeah, the no-fail missions. Right. So to me, like, I imagine that there's a ton of bravery and, you know, valor on target. Uh, you know, guys are the most experienced in the military. So I would imagine that there are a lot of actions that could potentially mean this qualifies for a Medal of Honor. But, uh, you know, with that being said, it's Pat is the only guy to have received it. Is, is there a higher standard for the operators? Uh, when it comes to a medal of honor? So, you know, that's a, that's a great question. And it's one of those back and forth things, right? And this is not written down anywhere. This is not in a book. This is, this is nothing like that. This is just a thought process that one has to go through when putting in awards for their guys, right? So on one hand, you have, let's say, let's say team leader A is putting in an award for uh, one of his guys. Team leader A typically will think two things, again, in my opinion. Either A, he's going to think, 
what you did on target today is expected of you. That is your job, right? Why should I put in an award for you just simply doing your job? Mm. But then the other side of the coin is you have to step back and think if the action this guy did today was compared to across the board, DOD, anybody, any soldier in the military, would his actions deserve an award? And, you know, nine times out of 10, hundred percent. So that was, I mean, even for me, when I was putting my guys in for awards, that was something that, you know, I had to be mentored by my seniors along the way. And, you know, I, I didn't come up with this whole, you know, think of it this way that was passed down to me. Um, but, you know, there was even times where I thought, you know, I, I don't deserve this. Uh, and, you know, every one of my awards, I think almost every one of them, um, you know, I just go into the team room and there's an award in, the, in my cubby. I'm like, oh, all right. You know, there's no pomp and circumstance um, about it for the most part. Uh, occasionally there, you know, there's an award ceremony or whatever, but, uh, most certainly with Pat and well-deserved, I'm sure. Um, but, uh, yeah, that was, that was the thought process. Hey, if you're doing your job, you know, what do you want? Uh, or B, if I had to compare you against, you know, some guy down in the 82nd or 101st or, you know, wherever, yeah, you, you deserve what's coming. So. Yeah, that was that was the mindset, at least a lot of guys had to deal with. So anytime that somebody gets an award, whatever it is, bronze star, whatever, uh, that means that their team leader decided that they deserved it. And that's how it, it goes about. Kind of. I mean, anybody can put anybody in for an award. OK, um, but typically your leadership uh, would always put in an award for a subordinate, but that it doesn't always work that way. Yeah. I mean, the youngest guy on the team can put, you know, the Sergeant major of the unit in for an award. If, if he saw something that he felt was deemed worthy. I see. Okay. So before we, we hopped on to record, um, you had mentioned that you were testing some some ammunition on a sniper rifle. Were you a sniper at the unit? Yeah, I was in uh, I was in the recce troop for about three years. Okay, so and if if you, this is not something that you you want to answer, that's fine. Uh, as someone who's in the recce troop, do you work and deploy with that troop, or do you sort of? Uh, go out to where you're needed. Um, yeah, so that's that's getting to the almost to the tactical side of the house. But you know the and again, all, all this stuff is already on the internet. That recce troop is is a troop in a squadron, and they deploy with their squadron. Uh, and then at some point, everyone is going to pick up a you know get farmed out here and there. Um, and then honestly, most of the time, uh, recce troops were performing assault troop roles just scattered across the countries. Um, 
So basically, so even though whatever you, is required, regardless of you know you're yeah. a sniper or not. I see. Yeah. Okay. Okay. So let's um let's focus a little bit on Archon. Um, sure. So the the main task of Archon is training folks on firearms. Correct. Correct. Yep. Okay. So. Yep. So Dan and I. Dan and I were contracting for another company uh, for about six years. Um, I mean, in the unit, uh, Dan and I really didn't, we knew of each other, uh, but we didn't hang out with each other or anything like that. And as a matter of fact, I thought he was super stoic and, you know, looked like a complete asshole you know, because <laughs> typically he had resting bitch face. Yeah. Um, so, you know, I used to think, oh, this guy's a, this guy's an asshole, which <laughs> Probably 50% of the guys thought the same thing about me, you know, yeah. but, uh, Dan and I started working for this other company, uh, shortly after we got out and the, uh, owner of the other company calls me up and, uh, he's like, Hey, you know, you're going to, you're going to be running the shooting course for this air force unit. Uh, and you're going to be working with a guy named Dan Ibach. And I no shit. The first thing I thought was, well, you can't have it all. You know, I'm getting paid to shoot, which is awesome. Um, but I got to work with this guy. Uh, and then I tell you what, man, Dan and I have hit it off. Um, and the way, you know, not to toot our own horn, but the way we interact with each other and the way we feed off of each other on the range. I mean, we, we produce a level of instruction, probably, probably second to none. And I, I know that's a big um leap there but uh you know it's been referred to as the dan and bill show and uh you know we have we have a great time on the range it's always fun constantly cracking jokes um but at the same time you know given given great instruction in my opinion and backing that instruction with real world scenarios um, so I think, I think that's something that we, and now Archon Ready Group, um, provides that a, a lot of other companies don't provide. And as far as location, um, are you guys in one central location or does Archon run training, uh, countrywide? Country, countrywide right now. I mean, there are some ranges like uh, there's a range pro gun club in Las Vegas that we consider one of our hubs. Um, but, you know, we've ran courses in park city, LA, North Carolina, um, you know, certainly Vegas. We've got uh, a course going on right now. Um, that one is in Vegas. We've got a course coming up next month in houston uh another one in park city um so yeah we're we've been traveling around quite a bit and what are you guys mainly running like pistol and carbine or are you guys doing long gun stuff yeah we'll start doing long gun uh here pretty soon you know finding the ranges for that sometimes is difficult you know we want to at a minimum we want to be able to take guys out to a thousand uh, thousand yards, but, uh, primarily it's, um, our 
pistol rifle course is one day of pistol, the next day of rifle. Our modern um, pistol is two days of pistol, and then our modern rifle is two days of rifle. And kind of taking guys to that next level uh, with their pistol and rifle. Not to say that our pistol rifle course is, you know, basic beginners. We've had everything from beginners to guys that really know what they're doing. And the idea is you're not competing against each other uh, on the range. You're competing against yourself. And the systematic and progressive methodology that we use on the range, which is the same shooting instruction, same systematic and progressive methodology the unit uses for their um, shooting, we apply that uh, to our to our students, and uh, we're trying to push each individual just a little bit better. So, since the pandemic has started, the lockdowns were initiated, um, and then you have a lot of civil unrest across the country. Uh, the sales for firearms have skyrocketed countrywide. Um, I believe that there's a feeling that, um, well, I believe that there's a certain demographic of Americans that feel like this, regardless of what's happening, where you are responsible for your own safety, your safety of your family. Um, and that is why they carry firearms. And, uh, you know, the police response isn't quick enough in the event that someone's in your house, right? Um, but the, then there's a demographic of Americans that are anti-gun. And uh, I believe during this pandemic and lockdown and, and period of unrest, a lot of the anti-gun crowd has started to feel like maybe we need firearms. Um, have yeah. you guys no, I, seen I you know, first-time gun owners uh, in your courses this year? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, um, you know, guys that guys and gals that, I mean, hell, they don't even really know what they're buying. Um, and you know, no fault to them. Uh, you know, maybe they could have done a little bit more research, but hell availability is becoming an issue. You know, I mean, folks are going in and they're like, Hey, I want this gun. Well, this is all we've got. All right. Well, I'll take that flintlock uh, in that case, you know. Right. So definitely seeing a lot of new shooters. And, you know, the political environment, man, it's it's a mess. Yeah. And I do, you know, on, on one hand, I don't blame the cops. And, on, you know, I, there's bad cops, 100%. Right. They're not all bad. Um, but for, for what they're going through, if I were a cop and I got a call, especially after being defunded, after, you know, a whole bunch of people throwing pipe bombs at me or Molotov cocktails, and then all of a sudden I get a call that says, you got to go help these people out. Man, I'm going to drag my ass. Yeah. You know, that's my honest opinion. Mm-hmm. I mean, that whole shit that's going on in Portland, uh, where they have shops set up, where they have four murders in two weeks uh, mm-hmm. inside chop, I think. Oh, something the, along those lines. Yeah, I, uh, yeah, I think that was in Seattle. I think you're talking about. Or Seattle, yeah. yeah. I'm sorry, yeah, yeah. So, 
And then you see these videos of these guys who have got no fucking clue what they're doing. Walking around with bullshit kit on. Mm-hmm. I security you know, or something like some, that. Yeah, some plain Jane AR hanging from their chest. It's like, come on, man. Yeah. What what are you doing? So it's it's the folks that don't educate themselves enough that kind of give gun ownership a bad name. You know, the, the folks that are just leaving their guns out and their kid grabs them, uh, you know, to those folks, I'm like, come on, man, you gotta, you gotta have your head in the game. Right. Uh, it's the folks that are, you know, shooting themselves in the leg and, you know, all that shit. Uh, hell man, I saw, yeah, you know, I, I don't know if this was bullshit or not. Nowadays you can never tell. Yeah. But anyway, this guy posted a photo of his forearm and he's got a self-inflicted uh, GWS or GSW to his forearm. And the caption was, if you haven't done this at least once, you're not training enough. Ooh, that's, that's <laughs> stupid. Oh, my God. Man. Yeah. So, so what, I, what I say to new gun owners is, man, I, honestly, uh, I, I don't care if you come to Archon or not. Uh, I would much rather you come to us, right? Because we are a business, but go out and get some training, go out and get some education on what you're using. Um, you know, I've, I've seen guys show up with AR platforms, uh, and they don't know the controls on it just yet. You know, how do I lock the bolt carrier group to the rear? Well, you use this. Oh, I didn't even know about that. It's like, Oh my God. Uh, but I think, I think if folks were to educate themselves, you know, we'd be in a, be in a better place, but, right, you know, that. then I could go down the rabbit hole of, uh, the NRA and, um, all this stuff. And, and I, I'm not against common sense gun laws. I'm not against them at all, but the problem is it becomes a slippery slope. Yes. You know, okay, I'm going to. I'm going to give up this. So I'm going to give up this. Well, next thing you know, you're giving up more and giving up more. Mm -hmm. um, you know, and it's infringing on, on your rights, in my opinion. Yeah. Yeah. You know, so I'm, I'm from New York. I was born and raised in New York. So the, you know, the gun laws here are very strict. Some of the strictest in the country. Um, but it's just the, not only is it the politicians, but there's, a lot of folks who elect these people who feel the same way. And I think some of the, the differences when you talk to someone who is pro-gun or anti-gun is the, the pro-gun demographic is all about defending themselves, defending their family, and, and having the right to bear arms, you know, in the event that the, uh, the government just becomes completely tyrannical and, and, you know, we need to, to change things. Like, it's, it's actually in the Constitution, right, that uh, the people right. have the right to change the government if it's that bad. So uh, so that's like the pro-gun group. And then you have the anti-gun group who is just like, it's it kills people, we can't have them. You know, that's the bottom line. But I, I think some of the main differences, and this isn't something that I see uh, – 
whenever there's debates happen. This isn't a point that I see brought up often, but it's something I think about. And uh, growing up in New York, uh, the only people who had guns here were the cops or criminals. And the only time that you really, you know, anything that's related to a gun is brought up or placed front and center is when someone is shot or, or killed or shot and killed. Um, yep. so, so I think it, it has a different vibe when the only time you hear about guns, it's because someone was killed or someone was wounded and it, it sort of has a negative association versus if you grow up yeah. in the South, you know, your grandfather had a gun, your father had a gun, you were shooting from the age of 10. Um, and, and you're from a place where there's low crime, so people aren't getting murdered. Uh, so for you, culturally, guns are okay, you use it to defend yourself, you go hunting, whatever it may be. So I just think that's probably the main difference in, in the way people view the, uh, the gun issue in, in America. I agree. Uh, and I think, in my opinion, way too often, people listen to one another to respond. Rarely yeah. do we listen to one another to hear. You know what I mean? So when, when a pro-gun person is talking to an anti-gun person, they're just biding their time. You know, the anti-gun person is just biding their time until the pro-gun person shuts up and then the anti-gun person can say what they want. And they're not, they're not really listening to each other. Um, I, I think if we, if we sat some folks down who really took the time to listen to one another, I, I think we could come up with some meat in the middle. You know, they keep saying it, common sense gun laws, common sense gun laws. I, I, think, I think we could get there. But, you know, the, the left weaponizes whatever the right says and the right weaponizes whatever the left says. Right. So the right also is saying, hey, why aren't we looking more into mental health? Um, you know, and the left is like, oh, that's just an excuse and blah, blah, blah. Well, is it? I mean, um, what was the guy's name um, in Vegas? Was it Richards? Um, anyway, from the... Uh, Mirage Hotel. A oh, sane guy person does yeah. not do that. Right, right. Yeah. A sane person does not do that. Uh, it, it's man, it's such a hard nut to crack. I mean, there are a ton of hard nuts to crack uh, in America nowadays. You know, my wife is a teacher, and um, you know the the education system. You know, we talk about it. That is a that is a mess. Uh, from the floor up, mm. you know, gun violence. Um, I tell you what, I got a, I got a question for you. Back when Giuliani uh, was running New York, uh, and there was the stop and frisk um, was allowed, mm -hmm. uh, and now that's gone. And man, sh what's what's gun violence in New York gone up? Two hundred percent, something like that. Well, okay, so that's a good question. So. Um... Right now, so my brother's fiance is a prosecutor in New York. Yep. yep. Uh, so she and and she's in a place where it's kind of rough. So they see a lot of crazy sort of things. And um, yep. 
I think it was, uh, I don't know, probably around Christmas dinner, right? We were at the dinner table, and, and she's talking about how they have forced these bail reform laws through. They completely pushed it through. She said it was a bad idea, you know, at its core, and then it was even worse on how it was implemented. So what you're seeing now in addition to the court systems, you know, barely operating due to the pandemic, is people are getting caught for crimes and it's a a catch and release system. So now like dudes are literally getting caught with whatever uh, and they'll go to the precinct, uh, you know, whatever, they process them in whatever way and they just let them go. So there was a... uh, there was this guy recently, he attempted to to rape a woman on a subway platform somewhere. So Yep, yeah, I read about that. Yeah, so then, but it, like completely brazen in front of a whole bunch of folks. Uh, the guy gets up, he leaves. The woman was okay. I don't think he actually did anything other than getting on top of her. But he was arrested and released. So I think... That's probably the main contributing factor to the increase in um, in crime because it it th- this super surge that we've seen that you just mentioned like two hundred percent. I think that's just twenty twenty, um, but pre this new bail re- uh, bail reform laws, uh, the the violence was at at a somewhat all time low for a couple of years. It, was, it, it wasn't too bad. Uh, Giuliani yeah. came in. Um, so stop and frisk was ruled unconstitutional. Um, and you know, me, so I'm a, I'm mixed race, right? So my father's black, my mother's white. So, you know, I'm kind of a light skinned brown dude. Right. So growing up, you know, I was stopped a lot for no reason. Like, you know, I don't have a criminal record, you know? And so that was uncomfortable for me. Um, so I was never a fan of stop and frisk. But I will caveat that by saying when it was implemented, New York was a really bad place, um, like really bad. A uh, lot of murders, a lot of assaults, a lot of drug dealing, process, you know, anything you can think of, you name it, the mafia, the street gangs. So it was implemented uh, when the city was really bad and the crime was really high and they needed a way to get criminals off the street and... Um, you know, Giuliani did a fantastic job at that. I think once they cleaned up the streets, the stop and frisk then just became something that was uh, sort of, it became a thing that sort of harassed a certain demographic of New Yorkers. And it, it was, uh, the program was stopped. But I think initially it was necessary and it was very effective. And I think Giuliani did a good job at, in that at regard. Yeah, man, I, I tell you what, I can't even begin to imagine um, some of the issues that the African-American population goes through on the daily. Um, you know what I mean? And I'm not even going to pretend like I have an idea because I don't. But I will give you my opinion on on all of it. 
nowadays you see all these videos of, you know, a cop pulls somebody over and it doesn't matter who, right? And mm-hmm. typically the videos you see are these young millennials uh, who are reading the law right off their iPhone mm-hmm. uh, and just giving the cop a bunch of shit. I mean, that cop is making 35 grand a year. He gets calls in the middle of the night, 2 a.m., when the rest of us are sleeping in our beds. There's some dude jacked up on meth or something just beating the shit out of his crackhead girlfriend, and he's got to go deal with that at 2 o'clock in the morning. Right. So when a cop comes up to me and says, hey, man, can I, uh, you got any ID on you? You're damn right I do, officer, and here it is. Right. right. Whatever, no, no whatever I can do to, yeah, whatever I can do to put you at ease, that is putting me uh, in a safer spot. Right. You know what I mean? I mean, shit, when I get pulled over, I got a lead foot, man. I shit you not, I travel with a radar detector. <laughs> and when I get to the airport, when I get into my rental car, I plug in my phone, plug in my radar detector, and then figure out where I'm going. Right. Mm-hmm. I, I haul ass every chance I get. Uh, so. When I do get pulled over, uh, last time I got pulled over, um, didn't have my radar detector. Um, well, no, I did, uh, but it was nighttime and he was just pacing me from behind. So, you know, you're fucked there. But, uh, as soon as he pulls me over, the vehicle goes off, exterior lights go off, interior lights come on. I take my keys. I put them on the hood of my forerunner or on the roof of my forerunner. And my hands go on the damn steering wheel. That right. way, when he comes up, he knows. All right. I know this guy's not going to haul ass because his fucking keys are on the roof of his truck. Uh, he's letting me see everything inside his vehicle with his interior lights on. You know, I, I think of, look, if, if the cops are asking you something, it's an easy, easy day. Don't run. Don't be a dick. You know, right. don't all, all these things. And, you know, we got to trust that the cops, I know we're going down a rabbit hole of law enforcement, but it's a huge topic. We, we have to trust that cops know what's going on in the neighborhoods they're working. Right. You ever listen to um, the Tatum report? No. It, it's pretty, pretty decent content. Uh, but you know, there's about one cop per, per thousand folks. Okay. Um, you know, we've, we've got to trust that those cops know what's going on in their neighborhoods. If, if they drive by and they see, you know, they see, oh, there's, there's Delaporte again. He's been picked up four times in the last six months for distribution of narcotics. And here it is 3 a.m. in the morning and he's on the street corner. Right. We're, we're going to mm. roll him up, right? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and if they did roll me up, yep, here's my ID. I'm going to empty my pockets. I got nothing. Uh, you know, have a good one. But, uh, yeah, it's, I, I know we've digressed a little bit from gun ownership and, and all that, but, uh, no, it's, it's fine. You know, it, it's a bit, it's a huge topic and I, I think it's worth discussing. It is. Um, it is. Yeah. And, and I'll say, you know, as, as someone who has been on the the sort of opposite end of stop and frisk, um, you know, I don't have a criminal record, never been in prison, nothing like that. Um, and, you know, I didn't like that, right? But at the same yeah. time, you know, like you mentioned, you see all these videos online, um, you know, from the jump, 
the the person that the cop is interacting with may just be being an asshole, you know, and um, and they deal with enough yeah. already. And one thing that people don't understand, and I've had debates with people, is like if a cop is telling you, you know, whatever he may be saying to you, it's it's probably a lawful order, and he's in the right. And and there's rules to you know uh, escalation of force and and whatnot and uh, so so going up in New York right growing up in the inner city um, I, you know I didn't grow up poor or anything like that but you know the the, the neighbor the poor neighborhoods in Manhattan and the and the and the sort of middle class neighborhoods are usually separated by a block or two so there's a lot of uh, sort of cross pollination, right? And so, you know, you have friends, girlfriends, whatever, uh, you know, in in the the sort of uh, poor poorer areas. And there's typically there's more crime, drug dealing, whatever. Um, so there's there's usually a mentality in those communities that's like a a sort of you know fuck the police mentality, right? Um, and yeah. it, it's just, it, there isn't, like, I feel like there isn't much uh, thought to it. It's just like, this is what we do. This is what we believe in, you know, and, and that's how it is. Right. So yeah. growing up and having some, a couple of negative experiences with cops and, and, you know, uh, you know, having the, some of the friends that I had when I was younger, uh, you know, I was a little bit of a knucklehead but not a criminal or anything like that. Um, yeah. That was kind of my mentality, right? Um, and I'm talking about teenager, you know, 15, 16, 17. Yeah, yeah. No, I, I'm, I'm picking up what you're putting down. So, but then as I get older, um, and, I, you know, I had several members of my family uh, are retired cops. You know, my uncle, uh, cousins, uh, you know. So men that I respect a, a, a great deal, uh are police officers, or retired police officers. So, uh, you know, as I got older, you know, you mature a little bit and you start actually learning about some of these different things, escalation of force and what the laws are and whatever. And then you start to realize that, um, you know, like you mentioned, these, these guys have an incredibly difficult job. Um, people have good days, people have bad days. And, I would view a video of a cop, you know, asking someone for their ID and it escalates. And then the cop ends up, you know, they end up kicking the dude's ass and, and putting him in cuffs. And then, I, you know, when I was younger, I would say, oh, look at these guys. These guys are dickheads. You know, this is what's wrong with America, you know, things like that. But, you know, look, I look at it now and it's like if they ask you for ID and you're in a state where it's required for you to give your ID to a police officer, that's a lawful order. So at this point, you, you it's better off if you just give them your ID. Because if you don't, you're only going to lose. Like, either they're going to forcibly arrest you, and you may get your ass kicked, or it, it can get even worse, you know. So I look at certain situations, and I see the videos maybe posted, and, and people are commenting, like, look, look, you know look at this guy, he's an asshole, he's power hungry, whatever it may be. And I'm like, but he's giving you a lawful order. And, and he is a, you know, he has every right to do that. And 
you know, whether you agree with it or not, that's one thing. But at this point, you have to cooperate, you know, because that is the law and, and you are a citizen of the country. So, you know, just my perspective has changed. Um, and and I see people, uh, you know, now who who have sort of a similar mentality to what I had when I was 15, 16, 17. Uh, and it just... It, it, for me, it's like if 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 people did a little more research and did less, I'm going to respond and more. Let me put myself in your shoes. I think everybody would be better off on all sides. Yeah, yeah, I, I agree with 100. percent And I and I got two thoughts on that. Another hypothetical situation, right? Hypothetical situation. Let's say I'm walking down the street, cops pull up. And just tackle the shit out of me and throw me in cuffs. I'll be honest, man. There's a there is a part of me that's like, motherfucker, do you know what I've done for our country? And you're right. going to put bracelets on me? Have you lost your fucking mind? But the the mentality that's going to come out is, man, I just got fucking paid. Uh, you know what I mean? I'm right. not going to resist because I'm going to try and reduce the ass beating that I'm about to get, <laughs> and I'm just going to save it for that phone call to that lucky ass lawyer, uh, that I call. Right. So instead of resisting and possibly getting fucking killed, keep your mouth shut. They're going to read your Miranda rights to you. You have the right to remain silent. And then first chance you get, if it is truly unjust, false arrest, whatever you call that lawyer, man. And it is fucking payday every day. Yeah. But at least, at least everyone goes home alive at that point. Right. This, the second thing is it's a learned behavior. That whole fuck the police, mm-hmm. that is a learned behavior. 100%. Right? 100%. And so my son, um, love him to death, but as he was growing up you know, in high school, the only, the only thing he knows about the world is what his fucking high school friends tell him, right? Right, which is basically nothing. Right, and then he gets to college, and then, you know, he... He's transitioning now, so and I love him for it. But for a while there, he was like, well, I'm not giving my ID to any fucking cop or anything like that. So anytime he was with me, let's say I pull into a gas station to fill up and there's a cop over there filling up. In front of him, I would make sure to go over to that cop and say, hey, man, I appreciate what you do. You know, have a good one. Right. Because uh, I want him to see me setting the example. Right. So, yeah, it's... It's a shit show, no matter how you look at it. And it's, it's only going to get worse if we keep going down this road that we're going. Yeah. Uh, I mean, can, you know, it's funny is you go, you go into the black communities and you ask them, Hey, do you want to get rid of the cops? Fuck? No, we don't want to get rid of the cops. Right. You know, um, they want the criminals gone just as much as anybody. Yeah. And but probably, you walk down probably the street, more, more than anybody. Yeah. More than anybody. But you walk down the street and some 25-year-old white kid that doesn't know his ass from a hole in the ground, drinking mm-hmm. his fucking Starbucks and bitching about capitalism at the same time. You know what I mean? I'm like, yeah. are you fucking serious, dude? Yeah. You just paid for a $10 coffee from a guy who makes billions, and then you're going to come down here and bitch about capitalism and defund the police? How yeah. about this? How about you go pay taxes for a couple of years and then come back and talk to me? 
yeah, yeah. It, it's it's just stupid, man. And it's um, you know, it, it is a learned thing. You know, the whole fuck the police thing, and and um, and and that's not to say that there aren't bad cops, because like I I've dealt with cops who. You know, I cooperated. I've always been cooperative. Like I told you, like, even though I, I sort of had like that kind of mentality, because that's the, that was the sort of the, the mentality of like the, my friends at the time. I still, yeah. you know, my, my son. you know, my uncle was a cop. So I still I, I knew that I, I still had to respect these dudes. Right. Um, and, and I've been in situations where, uh, you know, one time me and a couple of my friends, we just finished playing basketball. And we're like a mixed group, a uh, couple of du- couple of white guys, a couple of black dudes, uh, and you know we have our cars uh, parked next to each other, and, and we're just kind of just you know smoking and joking, right? And then the cop pulls up, and oh, what are you guys doing here? Oh, we just finished playing basketball. You know, we have a basketball. We, you know, we we were sweating. You know, you, it looks like we were, right? Okay, no problem. They leave. They come back around with you know three or four cars. They hop out. Their guns are pointing at. We're like, oh shit, you know. Hands up, um, and and I, I guess they had some call that somebody was stealing cars. So I understand the initial aggressive approach, right? Because someone's stealing cars, or I forgot exactly what it was, but it was something that you know it was dangerous. So uh, okay, hands up, boom, they search everybody. Nobody has anything. IDs, IDs, um, and my friend. Uh, one of my friends, he's he's white, and he didn't. His ID was in the car, so he tells the guy, you know, the ID is in the car. Um, I, oh, you can't go to the fucking car. You know, where the fuck do you live? And and he's and he's getting nervous because he he didn't he didn't have much interactions with cops, so he starts to get nervous and he's kind of like fidgeting and um yep. and then the cop gets in his face and he's like, I'll knock you the fuck out, you know. And so I've seen. Like that dude was a scumbag, right? But most cops yeah, aren't, aren't like that, you know. So um, there are uh, Facebook groups for like the the local communities, like in a lot of different places. But I'm in a few for the the area that I live in in Manhattan, and um, it's mostly liberal. It is New York, and um, you know, people were discussing something, and, and I I made a couple of comments, and it's just like. The second I say something that you disagree with, I'm a I'm a right wing Nazi, and it's like, oh yeah, it, it's it blew. It, this happened to me. It was two days ago, and and they're like insulting me and calling me a cuck, and like I'm a Nazi and a police bootlicker, and I'm like, dude, like, like I've had some bad experiences with cops, and I've had some good experiences, and you know I think there should be some changes, but I, I think. You know what's taking place is is a little over the top. Literally, that's what I said, and I and I just got attacked on it. And I think it's it's that sort of uh, you're either with us or against us mentality that is just detrimental, you know, for everybody. Well, you know, it's it's not even that today. Well, I mean, it is, but it's kind of the the stereotypical roles have kind of flipped. And I kid you not, man, I was I was starting this text. Uh, on a string that has my wife and her sister um, and her sister's husband. And, you know, we, we have a text string where we go back and forth and, you know, we discuss our, you know, what's going on politically in the world or whatever. Mm. But it seems like, you know, let's, let's just talk stereotypes for a second, right? Let's talk 
backwood, inbred hillbilly cracker barrels up in the mountains with their guns, right? You know, that's a, that's a stereotype that you hear all the time. People would typically assume they are, are the ultra-violent, right? Mm-hmm. And if you had to guess, those folks are leaning towards, uh, you know, they're Trump supporters, right? This is all hypothetical. Right. If one of those guys were to get, let's say you told me you're a Biden supporter mm-hmm. and you said, hey, I support Biden and blah, blah, blah. I'm like, all right, well, hey, great. Uh, good on you. Uh, I don't, you know, best of luck at the election. Right. But if I were to tell you, hey, I'm a Trump supporter. I mean, man, you want to throw hot coffee in my face. You want to, you know, you want to kick my ass. It's like, hold on, guys. Yeah, um, like, how do we get to know, this point, right? Yeah, yeah, man. I mean, you know, 10, 10 years ago, 15 years ago, whatever, you could, uh, you know, they always say don't talk about politics and religion. But you could talk about politics and religion and not get your ass beat for it. Right. Nowadays, nowadays, your political view is like this secret, this dirty secret that you have to hide. Uh, or there's going to be some repercussion for it. Yeah. It's crazy, man. Yeah. Um, in, in that that same conversation I, I referenced on Facebook, um, uh, what the hell did they say? Oh, yeah. So they, you know, I'm not particularly like I like some things that Trump does and I'm not a I'm not a fan of like the thing I don't like the most about Trump is like his tweeting and stuff like that. Um, you know, sort of the way yeah, he, God like yeah, you I know, agree. attacks people. And, you know, that's like my biggest gripe with him. Right. Um, but yeah, I, I can I can agree with that. But some of his like unpredictability could be an, a, a plus, right? In foreign policy, you know, whatever it is, right? You're not exactly sure what you're going to get from the dude, and, and that could be a good thing. Um, but, like, I don't hate... I won't hate you because you're a Trump supporter. You know, like, that's... Like, I don't care. Like, you're a Trump supporter, that whatever. And the same goes if you're if you're voting for Joe Biden. Like, like I don't... You know, like there's things about Biden I don't like. You know, I I, I think he's a little weird with with some of the you know, the the touchy feely thing he got going on. Um, yeah. And you know, but whatever, right? Like like I, I just don't care. And it's just like, just because I have a, a you know, I, I mentioned something about uh, you know, oh, oh, so so this is what the this is what started my initial comment was. Uh, someone posted an article showing like these rich white kids from the city who were arrested, like burning shit or something like that. And, and then someone commented writing, well, who gives a shit? They're they're burning the property of Trump supporters. Fuck them. Right. So then I comment like, you know why it's not okay to destroy someone's property just because you don't agree with their politics. And that set off a firestorm. Like, you know, and it's just crazy that that's sort of where we're at. Uh, politically as a country um, and it's like let's say Trump wins again right what's going to happen is are, are people going to just double down and continue to burn the country or you know what I mean it's it's, it's just kind of ugly and and uh, you know I, another thing that I'm, I, I kind of gripe with Trump about is I, I feel like he doesn't do enough to try and like uh, to try and unify people 
um, like I, I feel like he does a lot of, you know, he'll go up and speak and, and just hit on the other side, you know, and, and I, I think at this point, I think we need to just, everybody needs to take a deep breath and, you know, cause we're, we're all Americans at the end of the day. Um, but anyways, uh, we, we kind of did go down a, a rabbit hole there, um, so, so sort of switching back over to uh, to you and, and your career. Um, can we talk about your um, your transitioning out of the army? Like, how was that for you? You know, there were some things that I wish I had known. Um, you know, I'll I'll never badmouth the military um, because it and it has and still does provide pretty well for me and my family. Um, but there are things when transitioning out of the military, whether it be dealing with the VA or any of that, that just seems so convoluted, uh, and su- such an ass pain that it's, it's almost like they set it up intentionally that way. Uh, so that the people just don't, uh, don't fuck with them. You know what I mean? So, so for example, uh, applying for certain benefits to prove that any of your disabilities were combat related. Mm. I mean, it, it can be a, a crazy process. Um, but when I, when I first got out, the, the transition was great. Uh, other than that, other than dealing with the red tape of, uh, of that, as far if you're talking more of the psychological transition, yeah, no, uh, no problem. Okay. You know, I'm, I'm sure there are folks out there that have a hard time adjusting. Right. Yeah. But those are, if I, if I had to guess, if you had to go gather data and statistics, I would say your tier one guys handle it far, far better uh, just because of, our, just because of who we are. Mm. Um, I mean, to get, to get where you are, you, you talk to a whole bunch of psychologists, you take all these tests, you know, um, and that's a part of the selection process. And, it, and it's funny that kind of ties into the rabbit hole. We just went down. Can the issue with law enforcement be fixed? 100%. Yes, it's going to cost you money. You're going to have to, you're going to need a better selection process for your officers. So that means you're going to have fewer numbers. So how do you increase the numbers? You offer them more pay, right? right? So what, what would you rather have? Would you rather have six cops that just walked off the street, no life experience and cannot hit the broad side of a barn with their duty weapon? Or would you rather have two cops that are highly paid that are, if they do have to draw their weapons, they're going to fire two, maybe three shots and everything's over with. Right. Um, so in improving the selection process for your law enforcement, it's going to reduce your numbers because guys are going to wash out guys and gals are going to wash out, mm-hmm. but then just pay them more. 
and then, um, and I, I know I'm jumping ship again, man, but, uh, no, no worries, no worries. I'll bring it all back around. The, the transition was no, no problem. Uh, when I got out, I took six months off. I didn't do a damn thing, but play golf every day and got my handicap down to about a seven. Uh, and then I went back to work. Um, but I, I will tell you this, man. I am a, I'm a hundred percent positive that myself and guys like me, and, and I'll even throw it out there, Archon Ready Group, I would love to start getting some contracts with law enforcement because I can fix their marksmanship problems. Right. In, in training, in training, you have to induce stress on yourself. You have to, and there's really only three ways to induce stress. One is to compete against other people. One, another one is to put yourself against the clock. You know, if, if you've got a gun, go buy a pro timer or download a uh, shot timer app on your phone and push yourself against the clock. That is going to induce stress. The third way is to do something physical. You know, I want you to run a quarter mile as fast as you can, get back here, load your gun and take one well-aimed shot, you know, some sort of physical stress. Right. Right, because imagine this, you know, let's say someone breaks into your house at three o'clock in the morning. You, your adrenaline is going to be going through the roof. Right. You've got to replicate that as best you can in training. And that's one thing law enforcement fails at across the board. And then I'll tell you this. Any, any law enforcement agency that's listening right now or listens to your podcast reach out to me. I don't care who it is. The first guys that reach out to me on my own dime, I'll fly out to whatever department and offer up a free day of training. Even if we just sit around at lunch and have beers and talk about the right way to train, I don't care. I'll fly out to them, work with you on the range, but it, it can be fixed. The law enforcement issue is a simple, simple fix in my opinion. And it relates back to the same thing we did at the unit, selecting not, you know, selecting the right guy for the job and the mentality. And you, and you got to have a better selection process. You got to have a better selection process. Yeah. yeah and, and that whole, that whole point to me, you know, that's why when I see things like defund the police, like it just doesn't make sense. And and like I, I said earlier, I'm someone who in my life I've had a couple of bad interactions with, with police officers. And and some of those dudes, like I can tell like this guy is not, you know, he's he's a little out of shape. Uh you know, he, he seems he just seems like a douchebag, whether he was a cop or not. He's just that kind of dude, right? And um so to say that we need to defund the police sort of blows my mind. And actually what, what opened my mind to understanding some of how it works as far as uh, the cop, most police departments really don't get enough training is I was doing a podcast with a guy who was a, uh, he was a Green Beret. He was a, a 18 Delta medic. 
And then he went yep. to the unit as a medic, and he was there for, I think, 10 years. And um, we were talking about the uh, the Pulse nightclub shooting in Orlando a couple of years ago. And, yep, yep. Um, you know, a lot of the, and what a lot of what he does now is he trains folks on, you know, TCCC and stuff like that. So he's he's all dialed in on that stuff. And uh, what he mentioned was a lot of the folks who died in that incident, they died because they bled out because uh, it was still considered a hot zone because the shooter was still inside the club. And uh, yeah. the medics, the EMTs weren't, due to whatever policies, they weren't allowed to run into this area that they considered a hot zone to treat these people. And um, yeah, no, that's correct. Yeah. And and one of the one of the fixes he said was, is if some of those cops had basic bleeding control training, they could have just slapped a tourniquet on some of these folks, and it would have certainly saved lives. But one of the problems is uh, is municipalities have budgeting issues. So a lot of police departments yep. simply don't have the budget to train properly. So to say that uh, we should defund the police, it just, it, it doesn't make sense. It's like uh, I was having a debate with somebody and, and they sent me a link to um, uh, the police department in Camden, New Jersey. So there was a point that Camden was was like one of the worst uh worst areas in the country as far as murders and stuff like that. They revamped the entire Brother, I, have, I have ordered I have ordered KFC through bulletproof glass in Camden, New Jersey. So yeah, I know exactly what is going on with Camden. Yeah. I mean when you get your fucking two piece crispy slid through some bulletproof glass, you know that the struggle is real in that yeah. fucking town. Yeah, and um, and the person who sent me the link to this article where they they sort of detailed the transformation over there for the, the police department was advocating for defunding the police. So I read the entire article, and then when I got back yeah. to him, I'm like, you do realize that they didn't defund them. They, in fact, increased funding, right? And he was like, oh, uh, and I'm like, uh, you didn't even read the fucking article. You just read the headline and sent it to me. Right. Um, yeah. So 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 that's really a thing. And, and you know, since doing the podcast, you know, I, I have more friends who are police officers in New York, New Jersey. And a lot of these dudes, they train on their own time and their own dime. Like they're they're, they're yeah, only man. required to shoot a few times a year and then you know on the weekend they go shooting their own weapons and their own ammunition <laughs> and it's really an issue countrywide you know there are some really creative solutions that people have proposed for that like uh like federal training task force and, and you know things like that I just think defunding the police is just a, a really a stupid idea and part of the issue is the folks who are suggesting this just don't know what they're talking about. And I think in order to make serious changes, we need to bring people on both sides of the issue, people from the communities that are affected by, you know, bad policing, uh, police officers and, and, and uh, people who can help someone like you, who can help with training, marksmanship and things like that. 
all that needs to get mashed together. And I think that's really the way to move forward. I, I think saying taking away funding and having these politicians just sort of knee-jerk react to that and, and slice funding like they did in, in L.A. and also now in New York. It's just stupid, and it doesn't make any sense, and I just think it's going to exacerbate the problem. No, I, I agree 100%, man. Um, yeah, I, there's there's no doubt in my mind that, like I said, guys like me, um, we 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 can most certainly help fix the problem 100%. You know, if you look at law enforcement, um, shooting evaluations or, or whatever they call it, you know, maybe I've got the verbiage wrong, but, but that's, you know, that's not my gig, uh, as far as what they're calling their stuff. But let's look at Montana, for example, the shooting evaluation for Montana starts out at something like three yards, draw your pistol and fire two rounds in four seconds. Um, there's, there's zero stress in that zero stress. And then New York's, uh, qualification is different than Florida. That's different than this, you know? So why not across the board? It doesn't matter what state you're, you know, a agency or, or whatever. This is the qualification for law enforcement across the board that that blows my mind that they've all got their own little different nuances. It blows my mind that there's really no stress involved. There's a professional shooter. His name is Bob Vogel. He took a law enforcement's uh, shooting qualification test and he cut the time standards in half and he multiplied the distances by five, right? So their final distance is 25 yards or something like that. So he's at 125 yards with half the amount of time and he still passes the qualification. There's, there's no stress in that. So you give these guys, yep, here's a box of ammo. You can train, you know, you've got to qualify maybe once a quarter. Um, and other than that, you don't have to do anything. And oh, next thing you know, you're in an extremely violent situation where your life is on the line and we expect you to perform flawlessly. Right. <laughs> you know I, mean? I mean, come on, man. And, Shit, and, my, and, my daughter's and 11 and she would know that that's dumb as fuck. <laughs> and, and that kind of goes back to what you said before about being able to flip that switch. And, and uh, you know, you guys will be on a target and then you're kind of taking it easy and then a second later boom you're right back on it but you guys have you know the the best training in the world and and all the experience so that's that's not an issue for you guys right that's true but you know we also have training on a variety of weapons we have training in medical we have training in free fall we have training in hostage rescue we've got training in this and this pick your cops train them to do their job Give them the money to do it. Pick them through a better selection uh, and assessment program that they've got now. And man, it, in my opinion, it would be night and day. Yeah. But, you know, who gives a shit about my opinion? So the other day I was uh, watching a podcast um, and the guy being interviewed 
was a former Green Beret. He was uh, he was in the SIF companies, the Commanders and Extremist Force. Yeah. I think they have a different name now, but or, or you know they have some issues now uh, with. I don't know if they're gonna yeah. get disbanded or whatever, but. Uh, he was in the SIF companies during the height of the wars in Iraq, and um, so he he was part of a joint task force, uh, I think in Baghdad with the unit and and maybe the SAS, and um, and and they were doing a lot of fighting, right? And one yeah. thing he mentioned about what kind of uh, saved him. In, in transitioning out and not having a lot of issues was uh, he had a couple of deployments in a row and then they forced him to become an instructor at the sniper school. Um, so he thought that, uh, just according to him, that uh, one thing that may help guys is taking a break uh, from those sort of nonstop deployments. Um, when you got out, did you do anything... Um, you know, anything else or, or was it just combat and then you're out? Yeah, it was just, just combat and then out. Okay. Um, you know, a lot of guys will go back overseas with different contracting companies. Um, you know, a couple of my buddies have, have gotten jobs where they're, they're back overseas, toting a gun again. Um, and you know, it, it just wasn't something I was interested in. Uh, so put it this way, whether it be training, contracting, deployments, whatever, I have not spent a full year at home since 1994. Wow. So, you know, even now I travel, but the traveling I do now, um, you know, my wife knows I'm going to be home uh, or at least back at the hotel at the end of the night. She knows... I'm just a phone call away or a text. Right. You know, there's never a time when the when you have to have conversations with her like, look, if I don't call for three days, uh, it typically means this, that they have intentionally shut down the phone lines until next of kin uh, is notified, you know? Right. So, you know, while she's waiting on a phone call, you know, she doesn't have to, uh, you know, she's just counting the minutes, you know, fuck, there's a car pulling up in my driveway or, or whatever. So... In my opinion, the guys, because of the selection process, the guys at my level, you know, when it's time to turn the switch off, you turn it off and you go home. Right. You know, that's it. Uh, the, you know, again, there's no pomp and circumstance. When our planes came back home, when we landed in those C-17s, typically landed at dark, uh, you got on a bus, it took you back to work, you threw your shit in the lockup, you went outside, you got in your truck and you drove home. Right. That was it. No. I mean, we, because of how we're made psychologically or how we're selected based off of our psychological profile, um, you know, we just handle it a whole lot better. Now, that's not to say that every single one of us handle it that way. You know, there have been guys that uh, struggle. I don't personally know them, uh, but, uh, you know, I, I have to imagine there's at least a percentage out there, a very small percentage, but nonetheless, you know, I would be, uh, I would not be right by saying 100% to the man, no one is affected. Right. I mean, I, I have seen some shit, man, that 
you know, most people could probably never, I'll never get it out of my head, but I still sleep just, just fine. You know I mean? When you see, you know, babies that aren't going to make it pulled out of rubble, uh, you know, that's not normal shit. Most people do not see that. Uh, but it is what it is, man. Shit happens. Uh, it's unfortunate, but no, I'm, I'm not going to lose any sleep over it. Right. <clears throat> so I know that sounds fucking crazy, but no, no. I mean, well, it is what it is. Well, you know, what kind of mindset do you need to survive in those environments, right? That that may sound crazy right, to yeah. someone who's uh, who's never going to be in that kind of environment. But, uh, you know, you just got to, again, like we mentioned before, you just sort of put yourself in, in someone else's shoes and it, it then it kind of does make sense, right? So um, you mentioned that, you know, there were some issues with the VA and, and um, were you wounded in combat at, at any point? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I've, I've got my 100% disability rating, uh, permanent in total, you know, but after, you know, I was on jump status for all 22 years. Mm. Um, you know, I took some bangs and bruises. I've got one purple heart. Um, you know, but the biggest thing that, you know, just bothers me is all the joints and, you know, the ankles, the knees, the hips, the back, all that shit. It just, it weighs on you. And honestly, guys, uh, where I came from, they had to be told, look, you're, you're banged up. You need to take a knee. Right. You need to not deploy. Right. And, uh, you know, countless guys would hide injuries because there's no way in hell I'm going to let my team go overseas without me. Right. You know what I mean? Not, not going to do it, man. So, you know, you hide, you hide it as best you can. Uh, you take as much meds as you can and, and you stay in the fight. Right. Are, are you able to, um, and if not, it's totally fine. Are you, are you able to maybe talk about the time that you were wounded where you got your purple heart? Um, yeah, no, I'm, I, I'm, I'm all right. You know, just some, just wrong place, wrong time. Um, assholes detonated their suicide vest. Uh, you know, cause better that they, I guess, kill themselves that way than to get fucking tuned up by a whole bunch of operators. But, uh, yeah, that was just, that's the wave tops of it. And I'm, I'm happy to leave it at that. Okay, cool. Yeah. So was it like a situation where just you're close enough to where it it affected you, the blast or whatever? Just a, a little bit. Yeah. Okay. But you know, you don't think of anything of it. Uh, yeah, I, I was, I was surprised when the order came through, uh, but, uh, you know, it's, it's helped me out, uh, a little bit after, after retiring, having the purple so, heart, like to, so you can say, look, yeah. I, I was wounded and, and this is the deal. Yeah. 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 So, so let me ask yeah. you, so guys, um, you know, guys, uh, sort of hiding their injuries, uh, in order to continue to fight does that bite them in the ass down the line when they do retire um in order to get you know their their full benefits or whatever it could it, it could right because you have to you have to annotate all your injuries uh and then you know when you get out all your medical records for the let's say 
let's say a busted knee. Let's say you don't say anything about your busted knee uh, until you finally get out. And then the VA is like, well, we're, where are all the visits to the team medic or where are all the visits to the this? So it could, it could potentially um, bite someone in the ass. But um, folks, folks from where I came from, uh, are typically well taken care of. You know, the the medical facility that we have there, they know what we've done. So they, you know, they take care of guys. They make sure things are annotated the right way and and blah, blah, blah. So uh, for, you know, some young Hua in the 82nd who keeps his mouth shut, um, you know, maybe he should maybe he should start saying some stuff and, and keeping uh, meticulous records and stuff like that. Um, but, you know, you've also got guys that abuse the system. Uh, you know, right. there's, you, know, you got some kid that's been in the military for four years and he's trying to get out on a med board because of, you know, he's got PTSD or, or something. Um, 100% there are guys with severe PTSD and man, I, I feel bad for him. Uh, I really do. And then you've got these shit bags that are, you know, writing that disability code uh, in order to profit. Uh, yeah, there's a special place in hell for those fuckers. Yeah, right. And and that that sort of uh, bogs everyone down and, and makes things worse with a system that, I mean, from my understanding, I, I uh, from talking to different people, I guess the, the VA hospitals are some are better than others. So maybe people may have okay experiences and then someone else might have a really bad experience. Um, but yeah. but mean, that, people like that anything, just make it worse. Yeah, absolutely. For sure. Yeah. I remember hearing a story. Um, this, uh, this woman was graduating from med school and she was asked, Hey, you, you know, do you think, uh, have you thought about practicing at the VA? And, you know, her response was, oh, God, why, why would I want to go do that? You know, uh, so if that level or if that stigmatism is stuck to the VA, you know, something's something's got to change. You know, I would rather civilians say things like, yeah, my hospital is great. My my doctor is great. But, man, I, I wish I could be taken care of at the VA. <laughs> you know, you know right. what I mean? That's one thing you're not going to hear. Uh, so it's unfortunate. Yeah, well, you know, I think um, part of it uh, is you know they they didn't plan for the for the the length of the wars, right? Like, like I think initially they meant it to be you know in and out uh, in Iraq, in Afghanistan, and in Iraq, and then you know for whatever reason uh, it, it it continued and. Um, and they didn't plan to be, you know, taking care of guys for 20 years of sustained combat, you know? Yeah. Yeah. But, you know, five, I, I would say this is a rough estimate, but probably overseas right now, out of all the soldiers overseas, even at the, the surge, the, the peak of the war, maybe, maybe 5% uh, of the soldiers over there are, Actually, going outside the wire and actually and kicking fighting. in the doors, right? Uh, you know what I mean? Well, that, actually, that's a very good point to to to, to sort of 
loop in there. Okay, so um, if anyone is interested, anyone listening, civilians, uh, police officers, anybody, uh, if they're interested in sort of keeping up with you or, or Archon or uh, maybe getting on a, a course, uh, where's the best place for them to do that? So the, the website, archonreadygroup.com, and Archon is spelled A-R-C-H-O-N. Uh, the website is a great, great place we've got all our class dates on there um and then archon has their instagram uh page as well and then uh and then honestly man like i said if you've if you've got some cop buddies or any law enforcement listening if you guys want one day of free training reach out to me through the website through archon then i'll i'll come out and do what i can uh because uh i think you guys uh deserve it uh or they deserve it uh, but those those are the two best ways um, to reach out to us, and we've awesome. got we've got class dates coming up next next month in Houston, Texas, and I believe I believe Vegas. Uh, but I'd have to look at the calendar again. Yeah, I was um I was talking with Nate, I don't know, maybe two weeks ago or something, and he was telling me he's like, you, you got to go out to one of the courses. Um, you know, one of the shooting courses, whatever, pistol carbine. Uh, so that's something, you know, I, I look forward to potentially doing, uh, uh, yeah, maybe meeting up somewhere with, with one of you guys or, and, and, uh, and doing that. Yeah, we'd love to have you, man. We've got a course in Carthage, North Carolina, October 17th and 18th. It's on the, uh, it's on the website. But, you know, that's on the East Coast. Come on down. And, uh, man, we'd love to have you. Yeah, that'd be awesome. Um, yeah, so it, it was great having you on here, man. I, I appreciate uh, talking to you. I appreciate your insight. I, I know the audience is going to as well. So, yeah, I'm glad that you came on, and I also want to thank you for your service as well. Yeah, I appreciate it. Hey, thanks for having me on, man, and uh, it was uh, it was my pleasure.